This is the Snug Podcast. In this episode, a national digital platform for Scotland. And the 2018 strategy recognised that we had allowed our health and care data to exist inside big healthcare clinical information systems. And the separation of that data away from the actual applications that use it is a fundamental principle that we're working towards in platform. Hello and welcome to another podcast from the Scottish National Users Group. Snug is all about supporting GP practices in Scotland as we all try and develop our IT and information systems to provide better healthcare. I'm Andrew McElhinney, I'm a GP in NHS Forth Valley. Now, I hope you managed to catch our last episode when we were lucky enough to have Professor Bob Wachter as a guest. And he gave us a fascinating vision of how technology developments may affect the way healthcare is going to be delivered in the future on both sides of the Atlantic. It was a brilliant discussion. Now, one of the ongoing problems when it comes to digitalizing healthcare is the fact that we tend to end up with loads of different systems that don't tend to speak to each other. And a classic example of this is how medications are recorded in GP and hospital systems and how difficult it is to exchange information between them. So if you're a Snug member, you may have heard Dr. Sam Patel giving a talk on plans for a single medication record at the Snug Members' Day in May. Sam's one of the clinical leads for NES, NHS Education for Scotland, technology service, and the video uh, is still available for members to see on the Snug website. Today, we're gonna hear from the other clinical lead in the NES technology service, Dr. Paul Miller. We spoke this week and covered a massive amount of ground, including some of Paul's thoughts on the current state of general practice, his big interest, which is clinical informatics. And the main thing was a discussion around the whole concept of the national digital platform. This is a massive part of Scotland's digital and health strategy to modernise healthcare services. And it's really about trying to get away from the problem of systems that don't speak to each other by decomposing applications into reusable components and separating data from the applications that use them. And Paul's a leading expert in all of this, so I hope you'll learn a lot from him and enjoy the conversation. So I'm delighted to welcome today Dr. Paul Miller, who is the Clinical Informatics Lead at NHS Education for Scotland Technology Services also a working GP and also, I believe, the co-chair of the Open EHR Clinical Programme Board. Hope I've got all that right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Paul, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks for asking me to uh, contribute to your podcast today. Looking forward to it, I think. Slightly, slightly nervous, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the last time we spoke uh, for the podcast, I think before the pandemic, we certainly, or I wasn't so familiar with Teams and Zoom, and I think I made a very poor quality recording of a telephone call, which managed to make you sound like you were in outer space. Uh, so, so I'm hoping the audio quality will be a bit better today. That sounded good so far. I think I was also stricken pre-COVID by some horrible flu-like illness and had a persistent cough going on for a week. So I think it's probably better that we forget that 
that previous recording. Let's just move on. So, so before we get on to the sort of digital stuff, I mean, I'm just interested as a GP in Scotland, just to get a sense of how different you find things now from when you started? Uh, I think the job, certainly from my perspective, has changed significantly. Um, though personally, um, I've been a partner in a couple of practices in Scotland and um, locumed also in Scotland 2004-2007 um, across Caithness and Argyll and Glasgow. And now I'm working salaried one day a week in Paisley. So my own role is, has changed significantly and I've, I've seen a lot of changes in general practice. I think when I started in practice, there was competition for GP partnership jobs. And for whatever reason, whether it's um, workforce planning or the nature of the job, obviously that isn't the case today. And a lot of practices are really struggling to recruit. Indeed, practice them in just now is a problem with recruitment as well due to partnership changes. And not just not just my, myself, I would say. <laughs> As I was a partner in that practice uh, three days in the practice three days a week, and now just do one day a week uh, salaried. Um, so there's been a lot of changes in that sense that general practice just feels on a, a bit of a sugarly peg just now with regards to sustainability. I think in regards to the job itself, um, key elements of the job remain very familiar and good. Uh, and rewarding with the working as a community doctor with um, families and people that you grow to know over the time you spend in the practice and delivering that kind of continuity of care and that deep understanding of people's lives and the problems and difficulties they have so that you can you know manage their health and, and help them to control slightly better their lives without over investigating or over referring or you know, knowing that the, the person who's presenting that day has got problems on in the background. So, you know, you don't need to, you just need to listen and, and wait, speak to them next week and things might be better. That continuity is really important and that hasn't changed, but I'm worried it's threatened, I hmm. think, by the difficulties in recruitment in general practice just now. Does it, does it feel much busier to you? Yes, uh -huh. I think definitely we, we seem to be busier and that's despite now having a raft or perhaps controversially maybe partly because of having a raft of additional support staff um, from pharmacists to community link workers to CPNs all supporting us um, and th these ad additional staff have been really helpful I think particularly I think community link workers are really good and offering support to people whose problems are primarily social or benefits related or they just need a a bit more life coaching in essence. Sure. In addition, I think there's much higher, greater expectation in the public around what services should provide for them. And that I think has been influenced by changes in the culture and understanding about public sector healthcare provision more broadly across the UK and what, what it can and can't do for people with private sector to extent nibbling at the heels and, and generating work, which then impacts on public sector. Yeah. It definitely we have got busier, though I am, of course, now in a starting practice, there's a six minute, 20 appointments per patient. And now, you know, we do see 10 minutes and actually everything now, or most of my consulting now is by phone triage. And I see maybe about um, six to 10 people face to face in a day out of about 30, 35 uh, contacts. Yeah. I still feel it's too busy, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because I think GPs everywhere are, are trying to grapple with the balance between telephone and face-to-face -face and maybe even online consulting now. So I guess that's all going to be an evolving picture over the next next few years. So so I know you've been a, a massive advocate of, of technology supporting healthcare over the years. And I guess, yeah, I'd be interested in just exploring beyond general practice, you know, what your current uh, main areas of interests are in your other roles. 
Yeah, so my principal role now uh, is informatics, really. So a couple of branches to that. The main one is working for NHS Education for Scotland Technology Service, which used to be called NES Digital Service, um, but we've had some changes. So we're now NTS, NES Technology Service, which encompasses um, both the workforce and education and training, stuff that people might be familiar, like the Turas platform um, for learning and for GP appraisals and also the national digital element, platform element of that, which was confusingly called the, the NES Digital Service, which was tasked off the back of the 2018 Digital Health and Care Strategy with building this new architecture for health and care in Scotland, this national digital platform for health and care. So I work in that domain along with my colleague Sam Patel is the other clinical lead. He's a acute side physician specialising in respiratory medicine and lung cancer. And my work within NES technology is really about providing clinical domain expertise into development teams, into engineering teams, um, and more broadly at a kind of strategic level within the organisation, trying to influence the approach we're taking uh, architecturally and informatically, if you like, to delivery of platform. My, it's, it's a great role. I mean, I'm loving it. It's really, really good fun and uh, really challenging and really interesting stuff. Um, I think within my main specialisms within the product teams are probably around what you call clinical modelling, which is about making clinical concepts, turning them into computable artefacts. In other words, making something computers can consume, can understand how you take a blood pressure, which we all know what a blood pressure is, and turn that into something that can be computed. And assurance of these models. So when our team take uh, a medicine from, say, the key information summary and turn it into uh, another message for exposing us, we're just making sure they've got that the mapping right. That there's there's not a uh, confusion there that might lead to misinformation downstream, and that falls into nicely into kind of clinical safety officer lead role, um, where we're um, working towards delivery of clinical safety standards within Nest Technology Service, and partly so that we can in the end support medical device regulation in case there's any software that we support or we deliver, which would be classified as a medical device, and also clinical terminologies support for the teams, although I wouldn't say that it was a SNOMED CT expert, I at least know how it works, and of course exposure to things like read codes and the drug dictionary codes, uh, dictionary medical devices and, and a wee bit of ICD-10 which is used in hospitals. So I've got that kind of background as well. So I'm bringing that kind of informatics experience into the teams backed up by my clinical domain understanding which is just often being able to translate to the team you know what an abbreviation means you know what a word means why they're using that word in that context why they're using that code there what actually happens when gps receive a workflow document into docman what do they do with it how does it how does it progress through their system so having that uh, domain understanding is really helpful well, I, I like to think <laughs> really helpful for our development teams Sure. And yeah, just thinking about what you said about um, medical devices and clinical safety, we were actually talking locally about that the other day because everybody wants to use apps now, you know, people in hospital to record diabetes information or, or whatever. And I don't know if that's a domain that boards can get into regulation or, or trying to say whether something is safe or not, whether we should be doing that at a national level. Should boards all have their own clinical safety officer now, do you think? Well, I'd like to see that. I think it'd be important from an uh, e-health perspective for the, there to be digital clinical safety approaches being adopted by health boards uh, across Scotland. But I, I realise that the resources may not be entirely there to do that. 
At least in Scotland, we have my colleague Brendan O'Brien at NSS and his team who are leading on clinical safety cases and to an extent the approach, particularly for larger programmes of work like uh, the new uh, CHI system, for example. So we have that leadership there, which is really good. And within our domain in NES, because we are delivering um, components and indeed some software which people are going to be using in clinical environments, we need to adopt a clinical safety approach. So again, resourcing has been the challenge there, partly because there aren't really enough people trained in this domain or able to apply these skills in real life situations. So I think we do need to have that manufacturer and customer relationship, you know, as a board, NES Technology Services, as a manufacturer of services, which health boards will consume. And it'd be nice to be able to hand over to their clinical safety officers. Here's the use case and the safety constraints around this application or component. We're not got that level of maturity yet, but we are working towards it. And we are doing um, some clinical safety work, which I'm hoping is better than no clinical safety work. I spoke to Dr Anne Wales earlier in the year about the Right Decision Service and her work with DHI and now I think Public Health Scotland and, and the mega app and, and trying to share apps across boards. Do you think, I mean, if apps are in use in other boards, is it legitimate for another board just to pick those up or do they still need to go through a sort of ratification process, do you think? It needs to be through a case-by-case basis because where you deploy an application, the context in which it's used and users of that application may be different board to board. So it's not possible just lift and shift applications without doing some analysis of whether it's you're introducing any additional hazards into the system, whether there's new risks that fall out of that. But yeah, sure, if someone has got an application deployed, deployed safely in one board, like Respect, for example, which we'll be talking about later, it's a, a relatively simple, a more simple task to move that and deploy it into another board, particularly if you're deploying the same kind of user base for the same purposes uh, on the same uh, components, components and architecture. So in terms of how the National Digital Platform's developing and has developed, can you outline in fairly simple terms for people who maybe aren't familiar with it, you know, what the concept is all about? Sure. So National Digital Platform, NDP, is a health and care platform, in essence, which was instantiated from the analysis done by the 2018 Digital Health and Care Strategy who looked at the environments and the applications that have been deployed across Scotland and the kind of um, architecture, if you like, that's the way all the applications linked together that we had in health and care and realised that things weren't really working in that regard. Um, people weren't able to share data or, or services. It was very hard to get change. So they said we need to change the architecture. We need to change the way we're building this. So the way it's worked is to, instead of building uh, buying an application which does everything is to try and break up the bits of that application into components and serve each one of these components as a service on what you call a platform, a, a technical platform architecture. So the different bits, for example, GP audience might be things like um, um, how you as a user log into the system or how you identify a patient or how you do make a clinical note or, or do a prescription or add an immunization. So we are trying to build components and, and we've already got a, a kind of embryonic platform up and running that allow other people to build things on top of. So that, that would be like we've got a, a, what they call an enterprise 
Masturbation Index Service, EMPI, that's a way of looking up who is a patient, finding a patient in a service. We've got a way of authenticating you or I as a user using um, the Microsoft 365 logins that people may be familiar with. Then we've got integration services, that's um, bits of software that allow other bits of software to, to pass data between them. So immunizations is probably the best example of that, where people might be feeling more familiar with the vaccine management mm -hmm. tool um, and it writes all its vaccinations into a central data store and that central data store then through what they call APIs or integration software talks to uh, downstream systems like uh, Orion Portal, for example. And key in that approach is sort of removing the dependency we've got on individual applications to handle health and care data. That's information about you, I and every other person in Scotland in regards to their health and care data. And the 2018 strategy recognised that in common with pretty much every other health and care system globally, we had allowed our health and care data to exist inside individual applications to be dependent on those applications, big healthcare clinical information systems. And the separation of that data away from the actual applications that use it is a fundamental principle that we're working towards in platform and delivering technically with the creation of data stores in essence. So that would be a health and care data store. It's probably better to think of it as a health and care record service. So rather than health and care records being persisted, being stored on your GPIT system, the storage can be elsewhere on platform and it's just the front end that you see that you operate on that you need to be exposed to. So it's a way of re-architecting systems away from vertical full stack EHRs where they provide everything from appointments to audit to patient identification to your authentication to clinical noting to how they actually structure the data under the bonnet to decision support. Instead of doing that in one big stack, break it up, put it into components and that allows for innovation by making it easier for SMEs and others to break into the marketplace because they don't have to provide the full stack of applications before they can even get started. Not quite an elevator speech. <laughs> <laughs> whatever whatever um i've i've heard explanations of of the platform before it's always been with lots of diagrams so you've done really well to try and explain <laughs> so with that, with that. So. <laughs> yeah but but i suppose just unpacking some of that a bit i suppose we're saying for clinicians it doesn't really matter where the information is you know you just need to be able to use it but there you're talking about a world where you're going to be copying information maybe from a GP system or a hospital system to the platform and maybe seeing it there more easily or in some cases maybe writing information to that but it, it seems to me that there's a very messy world then in which sort of we're betwixt and between we're dancing between systems to some extent you, you know and I guess that's maybe inevitable yeah, I think that's true. I think you're talking about the um, migration challenge in essence, it's how we go from one architecture to another um, and how, how we handle that transition um, safely. And it is messy just now and there are still requirements to exchange data back and forth between services and systems um, because we have in effect built a great deal of dependency on the existing systems around our services and also around our data. So moving from that architecture to a more modern architecture is very challenging. I, I think you do it, um, you, obviously you, you can't do this big bang approach. You can't just flick a switch one day and suddenly everything's different. You have to approach it from this almost what you might call bimodal working, 
just now where we're working in a complex environment and we can move data onto platform and build services and platform but alongside that we need to handle the the service transformation piece how to take a service from how it's currently functioning today and to put it in platform to actually make that a better service and over time i think that means we will start to be able to do more things natively on platform rather than having dependency on um, external systems or external systems storing data particularly and it doesn't seem likely to me that boards will ever want to sort of ditch the security of the commercial systems you know with the comprehensive whatever support development roadmaps training the standardization that they provide you know no one's asking anyone to drop security or you know service level agreements for supplier technology support we're certainly not asking people to do that indeed you know we have sles in place for many of our services but we can't build all the applications i mean we're not the ambition isn't that scotland builds an entire all single dancing componentry for a gpit system or a, an acute system and we're very much dependent on commercial suppliers to build these services so they'll still be handling um you know have, have support contracts and um service level agreements that that stuff isn't going away and security you know doesn't isn't affected by changing architecture of anything it's it's better um i think because you have a more coherent and sensible architecture to begin with when you're trying to secure your system but re regardless the um, security isn't compromised by this approach i think i would say far from it maybe when i say security i mean almost the sense of not affecting major change i mean as we've seen recently say with, with the sky gateway upgrade we're massively dependent on an existing system for our daily work you know whenever something goes wrong with that it, it's incredibly disruptive so, so that makes me think for gp systems or hospital systems it, it's very difficult to affect a major change you know as you said you can't do a big bang you have to do things incrementally yeah absolutely um you know it's that no one ever gets sacked for buying ibm mentality and i think that, you know that we are challenged by that kind of thinking i perceive now we probably do have better understanding within digital and other e-health leadership and clinical leadership around the, the the problems we face and why we face them from an digital architecture perspective and how we do need to change the way we're doing that delivery. That concept of you know, separating data from the apps, for example, was suddenly grasped by Matt Hancock when he was health secretary uh, in England a few years ago. So you can see that thinking is getting into the places at strategic level where it needs to be. And there's a number of consultancies like Ernst and Young and Gartner have come out with similar statements around digital health platforms being the, the way to architect health systems today. WHO, World Health Organization, also has a digital platform architecture handbook, primarily um, aimed at developing countries, but essentially saying you know, if you're going to build, for developing countries, the advice is if you're going to build a, a digital health infrastructure, don't go out and buy a big supplier, build components, build a platform, that, that's the way to do it. So we have got that realization. I think once you've got enough people saying, okay, we need to do this thing, then you can start to get actual traction and progress on delivery of that thing but it is difficult because financially contractually procurement rules and service transformation um, all these things create challenges to do that architectural shift but it's not beyond us and we can iteratively and gradually do that but we can't do it overnight it is a long-term journey as well so if people are 
thinking uh, so often with short short term thinking, you know, the contracts up in three years, we'll just buy X again or that'll do me. I'm only in this job for five years, so I'll just buy Y again. You know, we, we need to get away from that thinking and, and get people to have more ambition, I think, for our services, because that, frankly, they're just not sustainable um, currently. And we're effectively building de facto monopolies in digital health. And, and that isn't going to be good for us either. No, it's it's been fascinating, I suppose, during the pandemic to see the progress that has been made, you know, in certain things and obviously getting a vaccination record up and running was, was part of that. You, you've also overseen the, the, the RESPECT application development. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah, happy to. I mean, RESPECT, so RESPECT is the Resuscitation Council uh, Advanced Care Plan for people to express their wishes of how they'd be like to care for an emergency, in essence. Um, so it's not um, specifically a palliative care plan, it's indeed far from it. And there's some thinking abroad that you should be doing your respect planning at the same time as you're doing your power of attorney and your will planning. So it, it's wrong to think of it as a form or a plan. It's really more a process whereby individuals have conversations with their health care providers, their family, their other significant people to f- complete the content of a respect plan, um, which says here are the things that matter to me. Here's how I'd like to be cared for in an emergency. Here's who my important people are and how I'd like them to be contacted and recognises things like whether you have capacity or not. And uh, if not, what to do about that? Who's, who's your power of attorney? And also it includes a, a resuscitation a decision as well, resuscitation preferences as well. So actually from a a clinical perspective from my GP perspective it's really good it's something I'd really like to be working with um, although it's not currently deployed in, in GGC where I do work and because it feels like a much nicer or succinct process for having these really difficult conversations with people and it's also very patient-centered so we all we've done is is with the respect plan is provide a digital application to help and um, clinical users and others create these plans, store the data and, and use the data through the Respect Digital application. So the application was kicked off from uh, NES Digital Service was kicked off in 2018, as it seemed like uh, um, we'd done some work already and it seemed like a good place to go to start to kick off some platform development. Then it stalled a wee bit during COVID and then came back strong uh, uh, off the back of COVID. And it's only really been a success because of the uh, great clinical engagement and clinical leadership we've had in boards because through digital and its own can't transform services. It needs people who are able to take service transformation, get their teams on board, change the workflow, handle the other departments like technical and governance within their environments who may need to be kept informed. So all we are doing is providing a, a digital application that allows our clinical leads to affect change, really. What I would love to see uh, made more available is a clinical summary. I mean, we tried to do this locally years ago and before the joint data controller bit of the of the GP contract yeah. was there, we couldn't do it. But could you see a problem summary being part of the, the platform? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, so I would like to see that in a medicine summary and allergies and immunizations all in platform by default. Of course, as you know, just now the 
GPU records because electronically the most kind of mature systems that we've got have become the de facto um, centre of the patient record, even though you know they're fraught themselves with problems, everything from data quality through data migrations. I mean, that sometimes the data can be uh, absent or, or flaky or some, even sometimes unsafe. But nevertheless, it's the best we've got because GPs put a lot of work into maintaining these summaries and these records. Via the key information summary for a number of patients, um, the problem list is exposed, although it is the GP problem list, um, two out of our services, but that, that it isn't being stored anywhere else as such. It's just really been extracted, pulled out of GP systems and then exposed into views and then out of hours or, or for Scottish Ambulance or whatever. Getting that data from GP systems um, or any other system onto a um, de facto patient summary on platform would be nice to do all your significant stuff, but it's always this stage GPs having the best records. It's going to be all your significant stuff according to your GP. There are other users of health and care records who may have different views of what matters. You know, a urologist's view of what matters is quite different from a GP's view of what matters, different from a neurologist, different from an orthopaedic surgeon's, different from a social care worker, for example. So it, it's quite hard to build a single summary that is just the summary that everyone uses. Mm -hmm. But bringing data over to platform and having that nascent clinical problem list is definitely something that's on my kind of um, longer term target. We are building uh, better, more modern interfaces to key information summary and ECS. Both technically, we're building a, an interface which makes it easier for software providers to actually access the data. I would have to just say also clearly with good governance, we're not just doing this. <laughs> like everyone can have everything. <laughs> we do have clear sure. governance rules around it. Um, and in addition, we're uh, building a, a, what they call a care summary application, which gives a kind of more, more modern, nicer view of ECS data and uh, keep where, where available key information summary data. And because we have other data stores and data services within platform, we are able to perhaps also expose immunizations data into that space and respect into that space. So provision of that application has the opportunity to bring people into digital platform services to at least initially to view stuff. Platform migration, it can't only just be about viewing stuff because there's other services that do that. Mm -hmm. Portals, for example, do some of that stuff already. It has to be about creating and managing um, new data um, on platform in order to really give value to people. Yeah, I mean, I suppose thinking back to the, the early 2000s, whenever England were trying to do the NPFIT programme and share information from one end of the country to the other, Scotland were much more cautious and just had the ECS and the very small data set agreed. And, and the, the sort of concerns around sensitive information and, and data privacy were much less. But I mean, we are now trying to get into similar sort of territory, it seems. And I just wonder, given the, the eternal concern about sensitive information and, and confidentiality that doctors have, you know, if that will always limit our ability to share these kind of problem summaries wider than maybe just a health board area. Or, you know, it seems like the wider you share it, the more caution there needs to be. Well, I think this this is essentially one of those service transformation questions. How do you get from where we are to, to getting a different service? Um, and en route, you need to be very um, careful about sensitivities, both with regards to patients' data and also the service providers. Um, so GPs have anxieties about the records they have being exposed directly to patients or to sometimes other care providers. And these concerns we do need to take seriously and address. 
But equally, I don't think these are absolute blockers as to how we progress. I think there are solutions to these things. I think GDPR is essentially quite permissive, although people often see it as a blocker, in essence, for direct care purposes with appropriate governance and GDPR rights being respected. It's not unreasonable often to share data in health, to health and care providers. There are issues around sensitive data in GP systems that we need to be cautious of. I think with regards to what I'd like to see is a much more patient-centric record. I think the secret for health and care transformation in Scotland is about changing the paradigm from it being the service and the system that does things to people, rather it being the patient themselves who, who can consume services. We need to turn it in its head so that services are designed around patients and not designed around, around, designed around the systems that provide services. And in that space, um, that means patients need to have much better access to their stuff. It's absolute madness that patients need to go to you or I as a GP and say, can I see my immunisation list, please? Hmm. Crazy. We need to stop that kind of madness. Or, you know, patients coming out of hospital who don't know what the resuscitation decision is, is for them. They don't know. They can't find out. They, they can maybe go and ask. But who, who, who would they ask and who's going to tell them? You know, people are anxious about that kind of divulging that kind of information. And, and again, that's just crazy because it's information about them. Of course, you want to know whether mm. the hospital said don't resuscitate this person. You know, sometimes, you know, they get these decisions wrong. Sometimes you might actually have genuine objections to them saying that. But, you know, so patient centric records, we need to start getting the records into the hands of people into patients. Now, uh, down south in England, they've taken uh, a very direct approach to that. They made a contractual requirement to expose GP records to patients. I'm not sure quite what the state of play is with that currently, but it certainly created a, a rumpus, for want of a better term. Um, I'm not really of a mind to say that you would make that contractual requirement. I think we need to find ways and means of working that actually support service change. So rather than saying, hey, you know, now patients can see all your stuff, GPs, or all your stuff from date X, GPs, we need to say, well, what's the benefit? What is we're trying to do here? What is, you know, is there a particular service that could be better for this? Immunizations is a good example. You know, could immunizations not be better if people can see the records? What about allergies? Is there value in seeing allergies? Sure, but what's the impact on practices if patients see their allergy records and go, I'm not allergic to that, or I'm actually allergic to these 20 other things? You know, how do practices handle the workload that may result from that? You can't just um, go as a patient-oriented service that um, patients get to see all their data and good things will happen because bad things will also happen as well, unless you're very careful that you handle it. You have to say, what, what are we trying to achieve? Here's the service we're trying to develop. Immunizations, respect. What will be the impact of patients being able to view their own digital respect um, record? And by doing these kind of smaller scale, fairly well-scoped, well-bounded, progressive developments, we can learn lessons about how to do that. And we can also take, to be led by actually, clinical leads elsewhere to work out these problems and then see what we can do digitally to facilitate them and to solve them. Yeah, and I, I think a massive part of giving patients access to their own information is probably the explanation around that and their understanding. Otherwise, we'll be flooded by inquiries as to what this means and what that means. And like you say, whether it's right or wrong. I mean, we, we, we have covered recently some discussions about the new AI tools, GPT-4, and, and how good they are at explaining complex medical terms simply. So I wonder if we fast forward 10 years, I don't know how many years, you know, if, if you could see on the National Digital Platform, you'll have lots of, of patient information, whether or not it's a whole patient record or not, uh, I, I don't know. But, but 
people having access to that via an app perhaps and also having some kind of built-in tools to explain it so that takes the responsibility away from the doctor to some extent yeah yeah i mean you're you, sh- you should be helping us i mean you're clearly all into your service transformation piece I mean, you already identified you know things that may that might help to support that transformational piece Yes, I, I think I would like to see the patient's health and care record um, is the core health and care record is in platform that we provide in uh, Nest Technology Services, a service layer which allows people to build new applications and deliver services in a new way. Um, so that service layer is a technical service layer. It's the you can identify a patient, you can identify you as a worker, you can access data, you can add data, you can spin up decision support, you can run new programs, you've got user interface componentry, so you've got a standard look and feel. But I don't think you can ever get one application to do all stuff. I think what we want is a, a flowering of applications and development. And applications, as I was saying earlier, can't just be, you can't just spin up an application and expect things to happen. You have to think about, well, what is it you're changing as you're doing that? And how do you get your um, all the actors in that change to work coherently together from your patient to your administrator to your um, clinician providing care and to your people who need to be able to report and analyse in that uh, service later on to see if it's, if it's doing what it should. So there are really complex problems there. And actually, the evidence I understand, although it took me by surprise as well, about exposing these patient records to patients, which I think we should do, is that it doesn't flood GPs with um, lots of queries and concerns. That that, that hasn't been the evidence. Um, though I, I, like you, I feel very anxious about it. I think sure, surely we would. And even one is enough to you know, really slow us down the day. But that in itself, we need to just say, well, okay, that is initially a barrier, but how do we overcome that barrier? What do we do? How, how can we get past it? Do you put in a service layer above it so that instead of patients querying a record, going straight to their GP, they query a help desk. They, they query someone else, you know, and what is the process for change and how do you resource it? So are GPs going to need, you know, staff to support them in that regard? Or do, you know, do they need funding to support their own time? You know, what, what is the, the, so we shouldn't say, oh, this will happen and therefore it can't happen. We say, well, these are the challenges that we face. But the direction of travel is absolutely right. This is what we should be doing. So how do we overcome these challenges? How do we get past them? How do we actually make this effective change? Because what we're doing is not sustainable. What we're doing is completely unsustainable and it, it is falling apart around us as we, we, we watch it. And we're talking about lack of staffing and people not coming into general practice as we speak. We need to, to change how we deliver healthcare services, both from a technical architecture perspective, but also from a service delivery perspective and stop the system doing things to people, but rather systems are designed around people so they can, they, they can navigate the system more sensibly. I think one of the things that may drag things forward is the demand from patients for more usable services. I, I think in many ways the NHS feels quite broken at the moment. You know, and there's lots of difficulties and, and, and it's not a great environment to affect transformational change in. But maybe the wider world of technology being used for everything, you know, most things in life and people using apps and people expecting to be able to do things online. You know, will, will that push the NHS forward? Well, you would like to think it would, but I'm, I'm not. I'm not so sure. I, do, I don't think I'll be able to achieve it without people, you know, building on new architectures. I think, first of all, um, technically, um, it's too hard to change existing systems. We find, you know, requests for change go in, and they seem to enter a black hole of of nothingness, and and nothing happens with them. Or we get 
um, huge bills back saying, yes, you can certainly add this new thing, but it'll cost you this amount of money. So, you know, that's not a, a, an architecture that's conducive to health and service, health and care service transformation, and certainly not the kind of iterative and agile approach that needs to be taken in order to make these things effective. People do have high expectations um, from other services, whether it be banking or, or travel, but actually I would argue that health is a measure of complexity way above both these domains, um, largely because it's not black and white, it's all opinion, um, and that's quite hard to compute. Um, but it's not to say it can't be done. The only way to achieve it is to, to allow, to, to build this, this new platform architecture. Other people could build it, we, we're doing the public sector, but they can be done in other ways and allow people to innovate on top of that, to find the path through all these complexities that you alluded to, whether it be around confidentiality or service transformation or um, the stress in GPs or the risk to patients. I think I think if we build in that way, we'll find solutions to many of these, these problems. Personally, I don't like the idea of there being kind of a single application for health and care in Scotland that patients use. I know it's a nice in, but I think it would be inevitably exclude some people. I think we're almost better to allow a service layer that allow, authenticates you as a citizen um, and a bunch of other components on platform that allow people to build applications for you. So you may have, you may be partially sighted. Um, you may have specific disabilities or you may have specific uh, conditions that concern you. You may only have one condition. Why do you want to see everything when all that's wrong with you is blah, you know? Um, so specialise that for a particular application, for particular conditions. We have to recognise that we don't have all the answers. And I think trying to plan solutions at scale with specific requirements to be delivered in X number of years is not the way forward. We have to allow people to build iteratively and gradually and adapt as they go forward. So when they, they hit a problem, they can work around that problem or they can rein back, start again. I mean, all I'm really articulating here is the difference between an agile approach and a waterfall approach. And we know the waterfall approach is is <laughs> dead in the water, to stretch the analogy. You know, it, it doesn't work in healthcare because health is so complicated. You know, 500 page requirements documents deliver five, six years time. It's not it's not actually doing anything for anyone. It's not delivering what clinicians need and it's not delivering what patients need. And it's certainly not delivering what the public sector needs in regards to productivity or efficiency in, in these services. Paul, you've been you've been really generous with your time just to more or less wrap things up. I, I was just fascinated to think, I mean, you, you and I both know things take ages to change, you know, and, and, and five, 10 years you do see changes, but but it's, it's certainly not a quick thing. If you could imagine five or 10 years in the future, maybe after both of us are retired and, and, and doing other things, what, what would you like to see working better or differently in GPIT systems? Um, so GPIT systems, I think, as I perhaps said already, I, I don't think should be a GPIT systems but on mass, one system that does everything. We've seen a contraction from about 30 to 50 GP system providers in the 90s down to what three in the UK now, one in Scotland. You know, that it doesn't strike me as a marketplace that is effective. It's building de facto monopolies. So I'd like to see there being, from a digital perspective, a, a componentization of the software applications that people use to deliver care from, you know, if there's no reason why you need to have appointments and patient registration and prescribing and audit and clinical noting all wrapped up in the same application, these things can be separated out. And it may be that the appointment service that you need to deliver in Fourth Valley is different from what I need to deliver in Paisley, it's different from what people need in Fife. So different 
strokes for different folks in essence without but, but with the data being coherent and data on platform so that we have built and maintain the longitudinal health and care record for people in Scotland. So that's um, cradle to grave record or womb to tomb, as it was called somewhat confusingly <laughs> recently. I'm not sure I like that. Anyway, cradle to grave record, the longitudinal healthcare record, because the records that you've got in your systems today, your personal records, my personal records are new EHR systems, need to live with us through our lifetime. And particularly with genetics now, we need the genetic stuff that's being done on infants to persist through their lives so that data is still available when they're alive, hopefully in 100 years time for uh, data and applications to use. So we need to, we need to have that cradle to grave record, good data underpinning the, the services that are on top of that data. And I would like there to be uh, more of a patient-centric approach to services and care so that people aren't having things done to them and people are able to do things for themselves. Um, I think these would be great changes that we can do. I think digital is absolutely front and centre of that transformation. It's the only way we can do it. And actually, we couldn't have done it 20, 30 years ago. We can do these things now because we do have the technology to do it. We have the architectures to do it, the knowledge to do it, whether we have the will, whether we have the resources to actually deliver on that vision um, as yet to be found out, I guess. Paul, you've made a, a massive contribution to informatics in Scotland over the years. I want to thank you for that. Um, thank you. And also just to hope that we, we have more clinical leaders to inspire people to, to make these developments. Yeah, I agree. I think it was really nice to get more people involved in, in this kind of work in, in clinical informatics. Um, so we, there is the Faculty of Clinical Informatics now, which is still going, and um, along with some colleagues in Scotland, we're hoping to still try and find uh, ways to encourage younger clinicians to get involved in this work. So. Yeah. Well, thanks a million for giving us your time today. You're very welcome. And Paul is going to be a speaker at the November Snug Conference. And there's a link in the podcast notes to the agenda and see how you can register. What we didn't really get into at all today was the future of the key information summary. One of the main questions people always have is how we can record things like DNA CPR status, respect information and kiss information in a better way. And that's part of what Paul will be talking about at the conference. So if you have any questions arising from our discussion in this episode, or any thoughts or any ideas for killer applications which will use the National Digital Platform, or any thoughts at all really about the whole range of topics that we covered, you can ask Paul in person come to the conference or you can always contact us at snug contact details are in, in the podcast notes thanks for listening speak to you soon <laughs>